Alrighty. Hello, and welcome to Cafe with Strangers. My name is Monica Ledam, and today's guest hails from the sunny, sunshine state. <laughs> That's Florida, for anyone wondering. Um, I'm Norms, and I am the guest for this evening. I like to sing things when I'm nervous. I think that's one of my stims. Yes, that makes sense. Right? It's going to have to get used to it. That's how I'm going to have to learn to hold and wait my turn is with this microphone. Oh, nice. The ADHD urge to... <laughs> All right. Yeah, because the thing I started off with here is like, hey, there's going to be a whole bunch of tangents. So let's get started. Yes. And um, basically, to start off by asking you where um, from Latin America you and your family are from. Yeah. So my mom's side of the family is Colombian from Bogota. And my dad's side is from Argentina, specifically Buenos Aires. And I was essentially only raised by my mother. So when I speak Spanish, I have a Colombian accent, which is so funny to me because when I speak English, I have no accent. So people are always shocked when I start to speak fluent Spanish. What do you mean that people, you have no accent? Is it because you have like no accent, like that you, people know that you speak Spanish and like that? Right. And people are shocked. Like my English is according, like according to white people, my English is good. Wow. We're starting off already like this. Yeah, we're going in. Wow. Okay. You know what? We're going to get to that. So hold that thought. <laughs> All right. Um, do you want or have ever visited your home country countries? Yes. Uh, I visited, I would say, I want to say two to three times or maybe four, three to four. My childhood is a bit blurry for reasons. Colombia? Um, yeah. I've only been to Colombia and I think the first time I went, I was like super young, probably like seven six or seven or maybe even before kindergarten I don't know but uh I ha my mom has some family members that never came over to the U.S. like there's a group of them that came over starting in the 80s and then into the 90s and then there's like this one specific group that they just never came over here because yeah. they had no interest yeah. um but yeah I have visited I've not been to Argentina yet though my favorite things not surprisingly, the mountains, like the landscape, it's uh, so Seattle, like PNW is very similar, actually, the climate to Bogota, because it's very mountainous and kind of like gloomy. Yeah. And like the climate is like 60s to 70s in terms of like degrees in Fahrenheit. Um, and then riding horses, that was a really fun thing for me, mm -hmm. like just going to a farm and yeah. riding someone's horses. And we did a lot of museums. Like there's this museum of gold in Colombia that I went to, Museo de Oro. And I don't really have like specific memories, but there's photos. Yeah. There's photographic evidence that I was there. <laughs> so it didn't happen. So yeah, museums, landscape, and the activities that we would do. What do you consider yourself like Colombian American, Colombian Argentinian American? How do you identify in terms of that? Yeah. Um, I identify as Colombian American. Uh, I don't really resonate with my Argentinian heritage just because my dad was pretty absent. So there's not too much that I've learned about it besides that they have bomb steak 
and I have an, a big appetite for steak yeah. and red meat in general. So that's definitely, I think, hereditary. Um, but yeah, Colombian American for sure. A few days ago, I asked, I sent you a questionnaire. Yes. One of the questions was, are you multiracial? To which you said, no question mark. I had a mon moment um, where I basically realized or had a sudden really urge to just Google yeah. Google it. I was like, what is the like, actual definition of yeah. this? Um, and the definition that I got was multiracial, relating to people of several or many races. I went onto the census uh, website and it says that its requirement or something is minimum of five categories. Um, it says one, white, um, black or African-American, indigenous peoples, which they actually wrote on there, American, Indian, or Alaska Native. Mm -hmm. I don't like those terms, so I'm going to use Indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. um, Asian and then Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander. I didn't really like how it defined these things, and I think you could relate to this, is being from Latin America, I don't ever felt like that was a good question. I didn't like the answer. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not – I while I – present a certain way to people I don't consider myself white so I was like yeah I started skipping that question because I was like prefer not to say I was like none of these mm -hmm. none of these so we're skipping that question <laughs> that's getting oh, cool. that's uh, getting exited out so unless it kind of brings it comes up into the conversation then yeah but for sure census website not feeling it anyway all right holding up to the um, next next question on here your first generation yes. um what are a first generation millennial yes. <laughs> too? Uh, what struggles did you personally face growing up as first gen? Any experiences like from school that you'd like to share? Mm. That's iconic. Yeah, I never liked the census uh, boxes because I never resonated with being white. And then uh, Hispanic slash Latino was reduced to a yes or no question. So I have beef with you, U.S. Census, about that. Um, but apparently I'm white, so I check off the white and then yes or no to Hispanic Latino. Because technically I'm Colombian American, right? Like I was born on U.S. soil, right? Which is different for other first generation uh, Americans who maybe come over after they've grown up a little bit. Um, but your question was... My question was <laughs> um, being a millennial. Oh, yeah, yeah. For sure. My experiences. Uh, I feel like school was the thing I was really good at. Um, I feel like this is a classic story that first-gen Americans feel in terms of like having to be the achiever or the person or the kid that accomplishes everything and does really well to like make your family proud. Yeah. Um, I didn't start doing things for myself with my like education until I was like pretty much at the end of grad school. I remember journaling about how I was like, I'm going to school and I'm going to get my master's and I'm going to make my mom proud. Like I lived for her approval. And so part of that, like seeking her approval came from being in school, getting good grades, being on task um, and just like always performing at optimum levels, regardless of how miserable I was on the inside which I have a lot of evidence of that from my journals because I started journaling when I was in sixth grade. Um, I don't know what compelled me to start doing that, but it was just like my outlet. And I'm very grateful for having started doing that. 
but yeah, school was interesting. Obviously, well, not obviously, but I grew up around a lot of white kids and I distinctly remember looking around and asking, well, not asking my mom, but asking myself, why don't I look like these people? Like, why do I look different? Or why is it assumed that I'm only going to be friends with the other brown kids or the other kids with dark hair or ethnic features? So that was kind of, I think, interesting. I definitely internalized a lot of whiteness through my schooling and socialization. But luckily, I think overall South Florida, which is where I grew up, is very multicultural because a lot of Cubans immigrate through like the Keys and stuff. And it's way more diverse than any other part of Florida. The rest of Florida is like very much white, especially as you get up into that panhandle. All right. Can you talk about how you struggled a little bit more about your identity with it? Saying, why don't I look like them? Um, Mm. You're an only child. Yes. You. Fun fact. fact, um, You didn't really get the chance to. A lot of Latin households, it's very common for them to really not talk about things. Yeah. Um, It's just, you just don't ask, don't tell kind of thing, Mm -hmm. a lot of things. Um, And being an only child, how do you feel like that affected you maybe like you know what about your perspective especially like as a um how do i say this um how does it feel like how do you feel like that shaped your perspective as a millennial in today's age yeah questions there (laughs) well i think the only child piece is a big factor to bring into account because although i was an only child like all my i have a lot of cousins because my mom is one of nine Mm -hmm. so I have eight aunts and uncles, right? And they all had either like one husband or wife or multiple wives. And so they have children with pretty much everyone they've been with. And so all those kids are like cousins to me, but some of them, I grew up so close to them that we're like more like siblings. Um, But I think when it comes to my identity and questioning it, I definitely started straightening my hair very early on in school. As soon as I found, I think it was in sixth grade when I like went to a salon for the first time and I begged my mom for highlights and I ended up looking like Tigger because the highlights were so thick and orange and I have like dark brown black hair. And I remember going to school and just being ridiculed Mm -hmm. for having this hair. And I specifically was always wearing this like black white pinstripe trench coat it was my mom's and I wore it around the school in middle school with like black combat boots this was like my angsty phase because I was obsessed with Pirates of the Caribbean that was like like I guess as kids we like to figure out like ways to escape our reality and like pirates like that whole trilogy movie and like franchise that was my escape I like fully immersed myself in this world because it just made me feel I was excited about it. And then obviously to this day, I understand my fixations and obsessions about a lot better now in the context of my mental health. But yeah, struggling with my identity, I definitely kind of just turned inward and then tried to conform as best as I could by like having straight hair and trying to go to Abercrombie and buy clothes there or have that one special fit from Hollister that I would only wear on Fridays because I only had one. And like everyone around me had that shirt in seven different colors and I was just like, man, fitting in is really hard. Super hard. 
I know. There's like a lot to go into it just for being being first generation. Yeah. Um, one of the things you mentioned is seeking approval from your parents. Mm-hmm. I, th- that's a very non-American thing, <laughs> very common because yeah. I remember that as well with my dad. Like, go to school, get a good job, do yeah. well in life. Yeah. And I was I, that was glued to my head. I remember this one time from a report card. I think I got like a D or something. I cried so hard. I was in elementary school. I cried so hard. Oh I hid it. And my dad was like, it's okay. As a little kid, like that's how much it ingrained in my head. And yeah. I, I didn't even think about it until just now as a, like as a com- conversation thing is how much our parents influence us to do so well and how we do seek that approval. And we, yeah. I don't know, feeling like a failure if we didn't do well. Yeah. Like, um, yeah. Um, I, one thing I wanted to talk about, because earlier you mentioned – that people are surprised about you speaking Spanish. Mm. Like, um, I guess, did you ever get um, pulled away to do like testing your English to see how it was, like to see if you needed ESL ESL classes or anything mm. like that? Um, no, I never got pulled away. But when I made that comment about people being surprised, it's mostly because people make a lot of assumptions based on how I look, like physically how I present. I have like super dark hair, dark features. And so people will wonder what my ethnicity is. And a lot of people like, for example, obviously this was pre-pandemic. I would rather die than ride in an Uber ever again. But (laughs) Um, I would get into an Uber and they would see my name and see my face and then try to talk to me in Spanish or something, right? And like make that assumption or make that connection. And I think I have worked through a lot of the resentment that I have about being not white. But I think in that period of my life, I was very angry. And so I would like refuse to speak Spanish in response. But they knew I understood them because I would answer in English. And so I always just got irritated that people would assume whether it was a correct assumption or not, that like they could just come up to me and talk to me in a different language. Um, I just felt like Uber drivers are just like a bit invasive, but I think I'm just antisocial. I'm like, please just take me to my destination. (laughs) I don't want to have a conversation. But then I understand it must be like a lonely profession or maybe that like you love talking to people, but like I'm not your target audience. (laughs) I get that. (laughs) So I don't really ride Ubers anymore because of that. Um, But that was like one of the main experiences that pops out for me. Um, I wasn't tested for ESL, but I think, I don't know for what reason, and maybe this was just like a time, a sign of the times, but I was tested for gifted. So all of my gifted kids out there. Hello. I know you're out there. <laughs> um, I was in second grade and I vaguely remember basically getting psychologically evaluated. And then like my uh, IQ yeah. was also evaluated and they were like, she's on a, she's very intelligent. She's on a fast track here. Like we're basically going to petition to put her into a gifted program, which is like this very small group of kids and, um, who get taken out of their classroom for like advanced learning opportunities. And now that I think about it, it sounds very elitist and like uh, singling kids out and like rewarding us for being overachievers basically. 
And that's what kind of perpetuated this idea of like, I am such a smart person. I can do anything. Oh, it's me. And I was in the same gifted program with the same kids from second grade to 11th grade. So imagine like being socialized and basically growing up with the same group of kids. Like we were very close. We had bonded on a level that I can't describe and it wasn't always great, but I think it was really nice to at least not be going through it alone because we would get made fun of, right? Like other kids would not know why we were being pulled out of class or where we would be going. And they just thought like we were, I don't know, like special. Yeah. But special in a different sense, right? Instead of like the ESL where they kind of like second guess you or doubt your abilities. So luckily I never got that treatment, but I think at the same time I was basically put on a pedestal at school. (laughs) And then I was like, oh shit, my mom thinks I'm smart. The school thinks I'm smart. And not to say that I'm not intelligent. I think I, I am intelligent, but the way that they singled us out was just it causes a lot of weird dynamics between us and like the rest of the kids in our classes. So yeah, that's something that really like defined my formative years for sure. You were in second grade. That's young. Yeah, (laughs) That is young to be pulled away from class. I still, my mom still has the papers of my psychological assessment. Wow. We went through her things because she recently moved and I was going through her papers and she was the kind of mom who kept every single thing that I did. Like if I painted, if I finger painted something, she was like, oh, I have to keep it. So she has a stash and I'm very thankful for her hoarding tendencies. (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's like this paper of a psychological evaluation of me and my IQ. And it's like from however old I was in second grade, like seven so it was like 1995 or 96. Yeah. yeah. I feel like this might be a difficult question to answer, but out of curiosity, were you ever told or do you ever find out why you were one of the people that got pulled aside to be tested or like whatever for gifted? It just makes me think of the schooling system in America and what your experiences go through. Like, uh, missed opportunities with other kids I guess I should say Mm -hmm. um I guess do you have any opinions or thoughts about that yeah I mean I to this day don't really know what criteria they use to like uh test different kids I know not everyone was tested at in second grade like everyone was tested at a different point in time while they were in school and then eventually it was just like a core group of us but there was like a group of kids called the gifted kids and I was part of that group and then there was the kids who did honors classes and then there were the kids who did AP but weren't gifted and then those of us who were gifted and in AP and then there was people just in regular classes and then obviously there was remedial classes in like middle school I remember that um so I just feel like I guess the way my schooling system worked it was very much separated by um your ability to do well in school right? Like the better you did in school, the more access you had to better teachers, better curriculum, all that stuff. Because there's obviously, I think now that everything I know about school, there's probably curriculum requirement for like gifted programs. And I honestly haven't thought about it long enough to do much research, but I'm sure like my school district isn't the only one who was doing that. And maybe it's just like an East Coast thing or something or a Florida thing. Like, I don't know. There's so many things that are Florida things. So, 
just go to Google for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so going back a little bit to kind of being Colombian mm-hmm. and American, when is it that you started embracing your own culture, started realizing that, hey, screw trying to be something I'm not? When did, like, you want to talk a little bit about that? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> when did I decide to embrace my identity, my cultural identity specifically? Um, Probably by the time I finished grad school, to be honest with you. Wow. And I went straight from elementary to middle to high school to to undergrad, straight to master's. So I was in school from kindergarten up until whatever, mm-hmm. 13, 14, like almost 18 full years of school mm-hmm. and education and just always being playing the part of student. And I can't even tell you I, st- I embraced my cultural identity in undergrad because I joined a sorority. <laughs> um, my... My justification at the time for that was that I felt really lonely and I was seeking a community and I basically was presented with this opportunity for a sorority chapter being founded on my campus. And so it hadn't already been established and so it didn't have a reputation yet. And I think that's what kind of appealed to me. Mm -hmm. And I'm very much of like, you know, my name is Norms. I love to break norms and break traditions. That's just like something I feel like I'm destined to do in this lifetime specifically. I don't know why. Maybe it's because Aquarius is my 12th house. I don't know. That's astrology. But um, yeah, I joined the sorority and I was like, I want to break the stigma. Mm -hmm. I want to represent this organization in a way that is culturally diverse. And I I want people to be shocked when they find out that I'm in a sorority because that's usually people's first reaction. Like, really? You're not, you don't give me that vibe or like, how was that for you? I had a great time. I met some of my most lifelong friends, bestest people Mm -hmm. ever from that organization. It was a lot of women um, in one group. And so I feel lucky to have found like even just one or two connections that have lasted throughout. Yeah. Um, Because college was really hard for me. Like mentally, my mental health was trash. Um, Not great. But yeah, I embraced my cultural identity probably at the end of grad school when I realized that being a minority was something to be proud of, right? And being, for me, being at the intersection of being a female, being a woman of color, being queer, like I didn't even realize how powerful those things were until I was like, that's me. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also took me a long time to get here. So it's all right. We're here now. We're here now. Alrighty. I think you answered a lot of questions that I was going to ask. So I'm going to go over to the next one talking about Spanish. Um, mm. You were talking a little bit about the, I guess, the cons of speaking Spanish in yeah. a sense because of like the assumptions that people would make about you. Um, do you have any other pros and cons that you want to talk about about being speaking Spanish? Um. Yeah. Well, I would say prose is it's a beautiful language. I think it's so beautiful. And I think there's a reason that it's like the second major language in America, because other people find it also beautiful. But also, I don't think it's that challenging to learn. 
if you understand the concepts. But again, I can't even speak to learning it because I literally was just like, I was born and my mother spoke to me in Spanish most of the time. And I literally just, I don't know how babies learn language, but it just registered Mm -hmm. as like an expansion pack already added into my brain, you know? Oh, English was your expansion pack. Right. Actually. Exactly. So Spanish was my first language until it wasn't. Yeah. Which is so interesting to me. But the other thing is the a con I would say, I think this ties into being first gen American. I would have to do a lot of translating for my mom. I would have to fill out all the forms. Um there were a lot of times where she didn't really understand what was being asked of her or didn't you know, like no one ever really took the time to sit there and explain to her. And so I was the interpreter, mm-hmm. even though there are literally people out there who make that their profession. And they can be interpreters, but why would we give access to that to people? So I think I was forced to be parentified uh, very early on because of that, the language barrier. Not My mom does understand English and she speaks it very well for not being born here. Um, and even that comment is probably internalized white supremacy. Anyway, um, But yeah, I was just forced to like be the translator, fill out the forms. Um, I wouldn't say that there are any other cons besides that. I mean, I don't have any beef with the language itself. I think it's... What about experiences? Like speaking Spanish with people? Yeah, any anything relating to being bilingual? I don't think I've... Luckily, I have not had any like bigoted experiences with people where they're like, get out of my store, whatever, go back to where you came from. Um, But I do notice that my mom gets treated a certain way at work and she works for like a big company. So I can tell that there is a group of people that exist that think if you don't speak English perfectly without an accent, like I was referencing to earlier you're stupid like you must be unintelligent Mm -hmm. and i'm like how sway Mm -hmm. how is that possible i think a lot of people have seen that like joke not joke um it's sofia vegara yes vegaras vegara I don't, I don't know. She's Colombian, actually. She is. Yeah. Yes. I was actually looking up a, a whole bunch of people. Um, Maluma, Bad Bunny, uh, someone. Shakira. Uh, oh, Shakira. That was another one. That's I don't know, but I, I, I didn't, had no idea. Yeah. There's so many. There you go. I was like, I had no idea. And I've been listening to um, a lot of their music lately. Yeah. And I was like, go Colombia. Go Colombia. They have. Um. Okay, going on to, you mentioned a little bit how you were born in America, and you talked a little bit about, mentioned how there's a difference between being born here and not. Um, How old were you when you realized the significance of what it meant to be born in the U.S. versus not? Uh, Probably however old I was when I learned about the DREAM Act. Uh, I think it's where, like, you basically get sponsored by the U.S. I think it was an act during the Obama era, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know history very well just because I don't take the time to look it up. But I think it was during the Obama administration when there was like just talks about dreamers and 
how their visas might, might expire. And then obviously with the Trump administration that became threatened. Um, but I was in high school probably when I realized, um, which is funny because my mom, uh, she had to take a test for citizenship mm-hmm. and she had to like pass an exam and do all these things. And it took her almost 10 years to get her papers after she got here. Wow. So uh, I didn't really realize the privilege, to be honest, until I was like in high school. I'm so I Googled it. I'm a, I'm a Googler. It says that there was their original version of the Dream Act was introduced on April twenty fifth, two thousand and one. So I guess, and there's something on here about twenty twenty one. So it looks like it's continuously mm-hmm. being whatever. But um, and oh, uh, I I think I told you something about like oh hold on we're gonna talk about this. Mm. But basically, um, any sort of like well. Like racism, did you notice any of that? You said um, you didn't experience any people, anyone saying, oh, go back to your country and, and stuff. Um, I mean, I'm aware that it happens. And I think I've just seen it happen to other people. Yeah. Um, like I said to my mom, I notice that they treat her differently. Um, but outside of that, I think racism is, a, is an issue that needs to, obviously it needs to be addressed in its entirety, but black people you know like being black in america is a dangerous thing right and i think maybe that's another privilege that we have um obviously you can't see us but i'm not like brown but i'm also not pale white right like this color of my skin so i think in some spaces i can pass as you know white passing and then especially when i speak people don't feel threatened in the room or whatever the case might be right and i think it's obviously unfortunate and disgusting that people are threatened when they hear a different language like wow you need to do some traveling or like cultural awakening for yourself to realize that like america is not the center of the universe um actually the sun is we all just revolve around it um but yeah, we we are both white passing in that way. So I think that grants us a lot of uh, privilege that most black people literally do not have. Kind of going off of that, I did not realize, like, I did not realize what white privilege was and that I had it until, unfortunately, um, George Floyd yeah. happened mm-hmm. um, when he was murdered. We all know it. He was yeah. murdered. Um, so that to me, it was, I was mad that I, that, that I was mad that white privilege was even a thing. Mm-hmm. And I was also mad that it took me so long yeah. to realize that was a thing. And it just went to go and show the, um, Oh my god, I lost my turn of thought. Damn, ADHD. <laughs> I mean, it shows how like uh, insidious it is, yeah. right? Like it's so under the radar that like that like people literally don't, yeah, that people don't realize it until some big event. And George Floyd was the biggest racial awakening in America to the to date. And that's good. I think people should be waking up and educating themselves. And then it's kind of like knowing that 
although we are we are people of color, there are still people out there that have it a hundred times worse than we do because of like the shades of our skin and colorism and all of that. So there was this episode that I saw. Um, have you heard of Station 19? I've heard of it. I've okay. not watched it. So whoever hasn't heard of it, it's Grey's Anatomy's kind of a spinoff thing. Yeah. And um, it's based in, in Seattle, these firefighters. And basically the writers like to do integrate a lot of what social things are going on mm-hmm. into their shows. Nice. Um, very, very um, promoting basically basic human rights. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And one of the episodes, um, a Latina firefighter, this was when the firefighters had found out about George Floyd and what she said represented so much what I think a lot of um, um, Latinx people have felt. Mm. And it was that, and, and she, it was kind of as, as like you in the sense where she can, she has like the lighter skin privilege, but she is also Latina and you can tell. Hello. Welcome to this little interruption where instead of hearing me babble on for a couple minutes trying to paraphrase, I'm going to be babbling for about one minute and trying to paraphrase. Um, So I ended up finding the episode um, where this situation happens and Andy is talking with a therapist. She touches base on a lot more than I can remember, Um, but what does ring true to me, or not ring true to me, but what... I remember and what I'm able to kind of get from a fan page (laughs) is that when she's speaking with his therapist, she has a conflicting moment where she is feeling guilty for not realizing the struggles of being a black person in America um, until she married, until she fell in love with a black man. And she also goes on to discuss how when she grew up, she had her own experiences dealing with with bigoted people. Um, when they would call, when she would hear her father be called names, um, and how when they would ask her, you know, where she was really from, when they saw her name, her last name, um, and she also mentions how she got treated okay because her skin is a lot lighter. And so with this, when I came across this episode and I watched it, it stayed with me because while I have not had remotely anywhere near any kind of struggles as um, some of my other just, you know, cousins have had, it, I still saw it and it still you, you know, from a young age, you grow up seeing those things and it's confusing and you wonder, like, why is this happening? And then something else that that Andy said in the show was, like, finding that balance between these are my people, we have our own struggles, but hey, we also need to support this other group of people because right now, they're getting it bad and and finding that validation and 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 being and supporting both um i'm not sure at this point if this is making sense it makes sense to my head but i realize i may not make sense to other people but anyways this is me babbling a little more coherent coherently than the original recording and moving on anyways let's go on to the next subject yeah let's talk about sexuality Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. All right. So basically, how do you, I'll let you tell this, like, how do you identify yeah. and um, 
what were like the struggles of coming out not straight for you? Oh my gosh, my heart just started racing. Dun dun dun. Uh, wow, my sexuality—it's been a quite a roller coaster for sure. Um, I basically spent most of my life trying to be straight, um, and forcing myself into boxes that I thought were expected of me, and then non-traditional norms was like, hey. I'm going to question this because it doesn't make sense. How could this possibly be the only way to love or exist? And so I think, so my sexuality and my addiction story are very much wrapped up in each other because I used drugs and alcohol to basically repress and suppress everything that I was ever questioning about myself. Mm -hmm. And I think there was so much instability for me on the inside that I just wasn't ready to confront it. Mm -hmm. And so I basically like kind of avoided men Mm -hmm. for most of college. I was never the kind of girl who was like hooking up with guys um, or exploring my sexuality in that way, which I know a lot of young kids do, which is totally normal and okay. We're all sexual beings on some, on some level. And then there's also asexuality, which is just as valid. And so I don't know if other people, other queers can relate, but there was definitely a point in time where I was like, wait, maybe I'm asexual because (laughs) I was like, why don't I feel physically turned on or attracted to men? Maybe it's only certain men. And then I don't know. I basically what happened is I met this woman and I fell in love with her. And then I was like, oh. I'm gay, right? <laughs> I was like, how could I have this much like love in my heart and romantic attraction to another woman? Mm-hmm. It was my first time. Um, and it was also the first time I like gave myself permission mm-hmm. to even act on those feelings. And I was like going through something, I think, in that year of my life where I was like, I'm going to let people love me because I had spent so much of my life kind of pushing people away from me Mm -hmm. to just keep them at arm's length. You never knew too much about me um, because that felt safer. And so I got feelings for this woman and I totally let her in. And I was like, I'm going to be courageous in love and I'm just going to see where this goes. Right. Mm -hmm. I was like willing to take the risk. And I still to this day have no regrets about it because that's kind of what led to me realizing that I was gay. And then I was in this like bisexual, bisexual denial phase where I know for me, I wish this wasn't the case, but I definitely told people that I was bisexual because I was terrified of being called a lesbian. And the L word is such a... There's so much like stigma against that word. And it feels like I I know for me in the past, it felt like a dirty word and something that I had to work on reclaiming for myself because it had been like historically, obviously in queer history, like it is has been Mm -hmm. deemed like a dirty word or something bad. And yeah, so there was a period where I also kind of identified as bisexual. And then I think it was in 2020, actually, I realized like, I really don't like men. I'm not into men physically, intellectually, emotionally, like there's nothing there for me. Mm -hmm. And so I basically said, okay, we're just going to stop trying to force what is not 
like organically meant to happen. Mm -hmm. And I've only dated women since then. And I'm like the happiest I've ever been. So, yeah. There's something that I actually, as you were saying, the word reclaimed, I was just about to write the word reclaimed because I do feel like growing up, yes, the word lesbian was a dirty word. And I actually like also seen as hypersexual because of how it's deemed in in like like just like porn for example like how exactly and that to me i do feel i can understand how this is being reclaimed like using the word lesbian is reclaiming it and bringing the power to that word and not having it be used as like that like when i say um like lesbiana in spanish um it hits a little bit differently than the word the lesbian. The both of those, and I just think it goes with like the internalized homophobia that I that I experienced, is the word lesbiana. Like, let me try, backtrack a little bit. I was watching a show on Netflix. I'm trying to get better at my at my español, mm-hmm. and it's in Spanish. And one of the the men there said the word lesbiana. Oh no, he is lesbiana, and it just it's not a bad word. I hope that wasn't recorded. That was my stomach grumbling. I, over time and time again, hearing the word lesbian, I was always seen as like a, mm-hmm. a bad thing. Being anything other than straight was like mm, weird. In, um, you know, especially in like in a Latin, like family and community. Yeah. Uh, it's not like, no, if, it's one thing if you're a, a gay man, True. but if you're a lesbian woman, there was always, even then the patriarchy in, yeah, and yeah. would win there. It's like, yeah, okay, you're a gay man. It's not, okay, you're, you're a gay man. Oh, is lesbiana? Oh. Like, there was, a, I felt like there was always a lot more stigma behind it. I can't think of anything else. And the word it's still, I think, I think there, there's a lot, and a lot, a lot of the Latin communities, I feel like there are a lot of words that, um, how much I say this? I feel like with us being Latin and American, we can use like that progressiveness to be like, no, that's not a bad word. That's not a dirty word kind of thing. I don't know right. if this makes sense. Um, but conditionally, yeah. that's the energy that I yeah. get from the Latin community. Yeah. So I think it's so funny. There's two things that came to my head when we were talking about just lesbian as a term. Um, the first one is Mean Girls. So this movie was, it's a cult classic, yeah. obviously. It came out in like 2004. And it was, I mean, I quote it every almost every single day of my life. I don't know if Tina Fey knows the power she has over me, but <laughs> I can quote that movie like the back of my hand, right? But then the thing that kind of sticks out for me is the whole Janice Ian story and how the mean girls are threatened by her. And so in order to ridicule her and throw her under the bus, they tell people that she's a lesbian. And then Janice Ian kind of like fights fire with fire. And she's like, I have a big lesbian crush on you, you know, like suck on that kind of thing, like reclaiming it, even though she's not even a lesbian. And I'm like, why is this example being used in mainstream media that like to be called a lesbian is a slur? I think that's so ridiculous. Obviously, like that was a movie for the times during those times. But I think these days that movie wouldn't fly. And then the other part was I'm actually 
taking the time to watch The L Word, which mm-hmm. was a very big TV show back in like the early 2000s, late 90s. And I never wanted to watch it because I was scared. scared. I was scared to see women who like looked like me or identified like me on the screen with other women. But it has been so like freeing and so heartwarming to see this kind of content. And I think everyone who is queer or identifies as lesbian should watch it. Because there's this main character, her name is Carmen, and she's Mexican. Mm -hmm. And there's this scene that I was thinking of when we were just talking where she brings her girlfriend, Shane, to a family dinner. Uh And it's the very much the conditional kind of love where we're like, oh, we'll accept you and your girlfriend into our home, but we're going to treat you like your best friends, right? You guys don't, you know, you don't do anything sexual. And then Carmen basically gets fed up with this family treatment, and she's like, this is my girlfriend, Shane. We sleep in the same bed and we live together. And her mom goes off. Her mom basically says, and and in Spanish, I'd rather you be a lesbian than a prostitute or the other way around. Oh, I'd rather you be a prostitute than a lesbian. (laughs) The punchline wasn't there. So yeah, she said, mejor una puta que una lesbiana. Hello. Sorry for another mini interruption, um, but I just wanted to put it out there since this podcast is a safe space. Um, This was already discussed, but I just wanted to put it out there that, yes, we said, or the word prostitute was said, um, but that is an old term and the newer term um, is, is sex worker. Anyways, back to the episode. And that, like, that was, that scene was not bleeped out, okay? Like, she, the mom just went in. Obviously, it's a fictional TV show, but that's based on reality. Like, I'm sure there are Hispanic moms out there who have gay children and are like, wow, I'd rather you be a prostitute than gay. And that broke my heart. Yeah. It broke my heart. So... There are examples out there that I think um, definitely give us hope, right? Because, like, eventually the mom comes around. Um, But that is people's experience in, like, coming out. I think I got lucky Mm -hmm. when it comes to coming out. I got feelings for this woman, and I decided that I didn't want to be – I didn't think it was respectful of me to be in a relationship with this woman and not tell my mom what was going on. So I basically like told my mom, I was like, I went on FaceTime and I told her, I was like, I met someone and I have feelings for them and it's a woman. And my mom was like, oh, okay. And I was ready to be disowned. Mm -hmm. Like I prepared myself to lose my mother. And like she is the only family member who's been there for me since day one. Mm -hmm. And I was ready to lose that. Luckily, I did not, but a lot of people do. And that kind of really fucks with me. Yeah. It really fucks with me that, like, families or parents have kids and they're – they all love their kids conditionally. And they claim that they have unconditional love for them, but you don't. Mm -hmm. You don't if you don't accept that your kid is gay. PSA, don't have kids if you don't want them to be gay. <laughs> kind of going off of that, did it change Did it change your family dynamic or any family dynamics 
when you came out i i don't like the word coming out but you know what i mean yeah um well when i stood in my truth of my identity as a queer woman uh no it did not change any family dynamics but it definitely pushed on the rough spots on the relationship between me and my mom that were already there like it kind of um, exacerbated those and i think because of what i went through in my first relationship with a woman i learned a lot about how to relate to my mom and how to treat each other so i think we're like in a very good place which i never imagined um but my mom definitely did the classic like oh is it my fault that you're gay or did i do something wrong as a parent and all i had to do was reassure her that like it's not about you it's about me and and i literally can't and never have been able to control my attraction to women and like looking back at old journals i mean i had like pictures of actresses cut out and like taped in my journal and it was only women Mm -hmm. and I'm sure people were like oh she loves fashion I'm like no I love the person wearing the dress or like whatever it was so it was just like liberating for me to finally stop lying to myself about the fact that I was like checking out women or looking at like girls when I was younger um but yeah family dynamics luckily did not change and I'm pretty open and like obnoxious about (laughs) who I love and who I care about. And so I kind of just walk into the room with them as myself and my family luckily is very respectful and they'll just kind of, they'll kind of take in whoever it is that I've chosen because they respect me. The word lesbian, there's internalized homophobia and internalized misogyny Mm -hmm. in one. Yeah. And another, other words that kind of reminded me of, within that it's like stop being emotional like a woman or whatever like they yeah. call you a pussy you hit like a girl i don't remember what you were talking about but i remember writing these things i'm like a lot of just hate towards these things and i feel like it's being also reclaimed as well it's like a lot of these words um boom. i don't know what that was i think that was just a stem uh, <laughs> we love it um all right you briefly touched base a little bit about being um like a queer person of color or mm-hmm. do you have any like experiences good positive or anything that you can come up that you that come up that you would like to talk about anything like that um i think i'm still working on finding my tribe when it comes to the queer community mm-hmm. um i think because i came out so late in life i think i was 18 19 let's see I think I was 26 or 27 when I came out. So I was... Wait, what? Yeah. I came out super late. Um, and what? I sometimes think, like, if I had never fallen for this girl, would I have ever come to terms with myself? Yeah. So I feel very grateful for their existence in, like, my story and my journey. Uh, but, yeah, because I came out so late, I didn't... I basically came out, got into a long-term relationship, didn't really date around or explore with women. Like this person was my first everything when it comes to being with uh, another woman. And it wasn't until that relationship ended that I really gave myself the chance to like be out and single and proud and gay. Mm -hmm. 
So, and then that also happened in the middle of a pandemic. So, uh, my access to community was very limited and has been. So, I think I'm still working on building those positive experiences, but through dating and like meeting people on dating apps, it's actually been really fun. So, I'm learning so much about you. (laughs) Um, Damn, already. I kind of want to talk a little bit or touch base a little bit about internalized homophobia. Um, Like what has your experience been with your own personalized internal internalized homophobia and how you've gone about it or still going about it? Yeah. I think the only time internalized homophobia comes up for me is a, when I'm in public or B when I'm in the bedroom. (laughs) So I think I've gotten a lot more comfortable just like being out in public. Um, with my partner who is also a woman but it still crosses my mind like i still have that little thought in my head that like people are getting murdered in different places of the world for being gay or wanting to hold hands with the same sex partner and that literally makes me crumble inside so i can't think on it for too long but that thought always crosses my mind like my physical safety I'm basically taking a risk right like luckily seattle is a very liberal area and it's very gay friendly Um, but not everywhere is like that. And I think not growing up with any examples of queerness in my community or in my life, like there's no one else that's gay in my family. I am the token queer (laughs) in my family from what I know, right? Because there's probably someone in the family tree that is gay, but has to stay in the closet. Um, and in the bedroom. I think that definitely trips me up because first of all, for a woman to be sexual with someone, it takes us a lot. Like there's a lot of psychological things that happen for us where it doesn't happen for men. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't read come as you are by Emily Nagoski, you have to, if you're, if you're a vagina owner, (laughs) you need to read it. Um, but it basically talks about how it's called come as you are by Emily Nagoski, N-A-G-O-S-K-I. But I learned a lot about the the term sex drive and like compatibility between partners and how different, just how different I think biologically women are wired um, and how that plays a role in like sexually connecting with someone. Um So it definitely came up like these like random shameful thoughts of like, I shouldn't be enjoying this or I shouldn't be doing this or touching this person in this way. Like those shameful thoughts were super loud in the beginning. It was really hard to let like to to fight against those thoughts. Mm -hmm. But I knew right off the bat that it was internalized homophobia because I was like, oh, this is like the messaging that I probably got from you know, TV shows or whatever, all those little comments that people make about people being gay or especially lesbians, right? Like the stereotypes. So uh, the internalized homophobia, definitely the bedroom and out in public. But other than that, like I feel very, very comfortable in in like being with another woman. Like it feels so right for me where other connections with like men, for example, just felt so wrong. Mm-hmm speaking um a little bit about 
that, like you were saying, oh, I shouldn't be enjoying this and, and stuff. Um, this a little bit. Okay. So a little bit about me. I was on a journey of figuring out my sexuality. And so I used the word queer because I had no idea where the hell I fit in. I just knew that I was not straight. And so finally, after two years, I'm like, ding, ding, ding. I, I like the word queer. Every once in a while, I use the word pan here and there because that's what I realized that for me, it is like, I don't care what you look like. If you're a piece of shit, oof, not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so that's why I um, tend to gravitate towards people, basically good people. (laughs) But um, one thing that really just ding, ding, ding my head when you were talking about like, I wish I'm enjoying this. um, The show that I was watching, it's called uh, Deseo Oscuro, something like that. Mm -hmm. Basically, and Dark desires. Dark desires. And uh, this, this, um, I don't know if you ever watched telenovelas. Uh-huh. Do you know who Maite Perroni is? Oh, I don't know names. Okay. I only know her because she's very attractive. Okay. Um, see, even me speaking right now, it's hard for me to be, oh, I'm attracted to this right. woman. It's like, so hard for me. And I'm still, I, there's a lot, I didn't realize the amount of internalized homophobia. Like I was, yeah. that's what kind of surprised me when you said you came out later in life. I was like, because I, was 25 okay just okay, i'm 27 30 mm-hmm. so just for a little reference there um being at 25 it was the first time that i actually allowed myself to realize like oh my god i am attracted to women basically i'm attracted to not mm-hmm. cis men <laughs> in a sense like oh, that's also there um i never because of the internalized homophobia i never allowed myself to check out other women in a sense mm-hmm. and so or the female presenting people. And when I was watching the show, I kind of averted my eyes away from from the actress. And there was like, there's like a lot of sex scenes, which I had no idea about. Um, but there were a lot of sex scenes in the, in the movie, in the show. And she's an attractive woman. Mm-hmm. And I, when I caught myself averting my eyes, I'm like, why am I doing that? Yeah. What's What was the difference between me checking out a guy because I was trained to, hey, that's what I'm supposed to be attracted to. So let me, let me, um, check out this person like what is the difference between me doing that versus me respectfully checking out an, a woman an actress on tv you know and that kind of crossed my mind is like wow that is my thing that's also I'm coming across in life I was like I don't allow myself to respectfully check out another woman a female presenting person because I never I, I never allowed myself and I was like wow so that's what crossed my mind and it's like oh you learn something new every day about yourself yeah um Okay, one thing I skipped over here on accident. Okay, if we can talk a little bit about like religion, um, mm-hmm. what you grew up practicing, um, and if, what you uh, you said you're you're still consider you still consider yourself religious is it the same one or a different one? Kind of like talking about that. Yeah, great question. Thank you. <laughs> um, so my mom grew up Catholic, and she like went to Catholic school and everything. Oof. Um, but she never pushed religion on me mm. and I still don't even really know why to this day, but I am eternally grateful because I know a lot of, uh, queer people who also have to deal with religious trauma. <laughs> and I think there is a difference between spirituality and religion. I think religion is like an institutionalized version of a belief in something bigger than us, which I think everyone needs to have in order to just cope with the world that we live in. Um, 
But uh, yeah, my mom never pushed religion on me. We did go to church a few times. I had like uh, a few cousins who got like baptized and did their first communion. And those are all like different stages in uh, Catholicism where you grow in your faith. But nobody is really like overly zealous about religion in my family. Um, Everyone kind of just has their own beliefs. But I think everyone has like the common belief in God. Mm-hmm. And if you want to call it something else, if that makes you more comfortable, I know for a long time, for me, the G word was like very triggering mm-hmm. and I don't know why. Um, I think I just wanted to, I didn't want to give myself permission to believe in something bigger than myself because then I couldn't play the victim anymore. <laughs> I get that. So I definitely can say that word without fear anymore, um, but I refer to it as God, spirit, universe, you know, um, I just don't think we're here by accident. It's it's definitely not an accident. We're here for some reason, whatever the reason is. I feel like everyone's like a character in a movie and mm-hmm. you're like trying to figure out what parts you're playing throughout mm-hmm. the movie. So that's really just helped me feel grounded. But uh, yeah, no religion was forced on me. I am looking into Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I've found that my beliefs are very much aligned with their values. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know how the practices or customs look like. So okay. still doing research. I think that would be a good thing for me to kind of distinguish is religion versus spirituality. Are you religious or spiritual? Kind of, Because I think those are valid points where they're similar, but also very different yeah. um, on there. Um. All right, on to one of the... Mm. Boom. Big topic. Mental health. Mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. Oh, actually, I do want to talk about one thing. You said you don't have religious trauma. Correct. Huh. I did not realize that I had religious trauma <laughs> until I started seeing things on TikTok, like people talking about religious trauma. And there's something that actually that I want to talk about specifically yeah. about the Catholic religion uh-huh. are the confessionals. Confessionals. I... I've never done one. You are so lucky. To me, I, I that it's the I believe from how I'm aware of it's the only religion where you do that. You wow. talk to a person in a room. You don't really know what they look like because a lot of you're not, whoever isn't familiar with the Catholic religion. Um, you basically go into like this little room or something. Sometimes it's like a little closet type thing, and yeah. it's split into the priest is on one side. And you're on the other side. It's either really covered or barely covered. So you can't really see each other. It's supposed to give a sense of privacy, but you know you're not alone. And often for me, it was a stranger. And my dad is, I am very, like, my family, very religious. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I know that that has to do a huge part as to why I internalize my career so much is because yeah. of the religion. Um, like, you're out to your family. I'm not out to my family. Publicly, I'm open about that but to my family it happens um and a couple reasons for that is i just um i don't want to bring it up to them until i I would love to do it in person (laughs) covid makes that a little bit harder um but also um i i was like i'm not with anyone right now and like that's for me like that just i'm not gonna i'm either gonna do it beforehand or when i meet someone because i'm like it's either gonna be one or the other um where was i going with that ADHD. Religious trauma. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I just – I never liked it and I never understood it because you're in a room with Mm -hmm. pretty much a stranger and you're confessing your quote-unquote sins, which really they're just secrets that it's like you – 
I think it gave it gave me a sense of paranoia. Yeah. As like, oh, God is watching me. I need to confess this. Like, I was not 100% honest in those things. Are you kidding me? Especially when it came to talking about, like, sex and sexual stuff. I'm not going to fucking tell a priest Mm -hmm. that, hey, um, hormones are going. I don't know what I'm doing, but, mm," you know, it's like I'm not going to tell XYZ things. Uh, I mean, even now, like, I'm a little, uh, not shy, but hesitant to say certain words. I was like, masturbation. Sex. I was like, I never talked. Well, by the time that I had sex, I wasn't, I was pretty much agnostic at that point. Gotcha. Um, but I was like, still never going to mention that. I was like, I'm supposed to tell you that I got mad at my parents as a teenager and I yelled at them. I'm a kid. I'm sorry. Like, and and so I think it just it grinds and like not grinds, but pounds in your head about um, doing the right thing. And if you don't, there's like, there's consequences. Yeah. And like, um, did you ever do your confirmation? No. Okay. I did my confirmation. I've never been baptized. You've never been baptized. So I'm glad that you didn't have to go through religious trauma because it is something else. <laughs> you literally just did the, the, what is it? The, um, father, the hijo del padre. Oh, Dios mío. I see it's been so long. I don't remember. Um, I can't do it in English. Yeah. Like these prayers, I cannot do the prayers in English. It's in Spanish. Oh my God. Anyways. Um, all right, moving on to mental health because that yes. is a huge, huge, huge thing that I would love to talk about. Basically, how was it navigating your mental health in a Latin household? Okay, let the, where do I even begin? <laughs> First of all, I didn't even know depression was a thing until I was 18 years old. Wow. Mental health was never spoken about in my household. Um, I was never taken to like a child psychiatrist or child therapist. Um, yeah, I the way I would describe my mental health journey, it started when I was 18 because I went or I moved away for college like four hours north mm-hmm. from my hometown. And that was like my first time leaving home. Mm-hmm. Still never been back, thankfully. <laughs> Um, but I went to college and I went through a breakup and I basically went through my first mental health breakdown and it was like the most awful experience. It, it, it was a lot, but I didn't know what depression was until the veil was ripped away from my eyes very rudely, might I say. And yeah, I just went into a total depressive episode and luckily there was like on-campus psychology services Mm -hmm. and I figured out that my tuition paid for a certain amount of sessions and I would just walk myself over there and I was like, I can't, I can't bear to feel like this and I have to believe that there's something or someone that can help. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why I had so much faith or trust that like I was going to find uh, someone much less a great therapist who changed my fucking life. But yeah, that's kind of the, the beginning of my mental health. So before that in my household, we never spoke about mental health. Anything that my mom was going through was behind closed doors. Like I would know intuitively, which I think now looking back, my sense of intuition and reading the room is a total trauma response to my childhood. Um, so a lot of us that are intuitive out there or highly sensitive, you have your gift because you went through some shit. Side note, Norma's a therapist. 
I am. <laughs> I happen to be a licensed mental health professional, but I had mental health problems much, much before I ever dreamed of being a therapist. Um, it was actually my first therapist that inspired me to want to do this because I was like, I just remember crying every single session every week about this boy who broke my heart. And I thought it was the end of the world. And when you're 18, it is the end of the world. Um, and also, I also have daddy issues. So (laughs) that was my first trigger of like, Oh, these are some things you have to work through. So yeah, I had this amazing therapist and he literally changed my life and not because he like told me what to do or gave me any strategies because to be fair, I think I was really just in crisis mode and trying to like survive that whole period, like being in college for the first time and my mental health totally affected my grades and I lost scholarships. Like it was really, really rough, but this guy just showed up every week and he was in it with me. Mm-hmm. Like he was sitting in the disgusting emotions with me. And I don't know why that thought crossed my mind, but I was like, I would love to be this for someone else. Like I would love to be in his seat or in his shoes and like just be in this overwhelming experience with someone else. And that's literally the only reason why I'm a therapist. I think you were born to be one. I'm not kidding. <laughs> All right. Um, so mental health is a huge thing in a lot of Latinx households because it's not talked about. Um, how was your family like with this? Like when you were having to like uh, manage mental health, like were they supportive? Um, like what stigmas were more prominent um, and history in your family, anything you want to talk about in terms of in terms of that? Um course you don't have to mention any diagnosis if you don't want to but um another thing that i would love is to break stigmas of of mental health that's always been a thing for me ever since i found out that i was dealing with something like that um so here's a chance for the norms to break the norms the question um how did my family respond right to me having all these mental health issues uh fun fun thing that I did I just pushed everyone away I literally just like completely withdrew uh I would spend hours and days just sobbing on the floor on the carpet of my dorm room which luckily the way that my dorm was set up freshman year I had my own room at least with a door even though like the room was the size of a broom closet or actually rather walk-in closet okay I'm (laughs) not gonna give not give credit but um I had some privacy and so I would literally not even go to class some days and not even move from my bed. I remember sex in the city was like a TV show that got me through that breakup. Um, This was back when Netflix had DVDs that they would send you in the mail. If that tells you how fucking old I am. Um, But yeah, I didn't like my family didn't really respond. I think they, they knew that I was going through something, but I think, because my daddy issues got triggered, my anger and resentment towards my mom just grew. Wow. And so our relationship was not, it was like the worst it had ever been when I left for college. Um, and yeah, there was no talking about it. I would literally just talk to my therapist and I would journal about it. And that was it. It's like, I was the one, only one out of all my dorm mates that was in therapy. I didn't have any friends who were like going to the counseling center 
Um, so there was no one for me to really relate to on that journey. So I literally just started it on my own and I was pretty alone for a while. What were the stigmas that you had to, um, I don't, if any, yeah, I don't think there were any stigmas. Um, I definitely think that I was just aware of mental health more so than most of the people around me because it wasn't being talked about a lot, but yeah, I think I just buried it under a lot of drinking, (laughs) which obviously everyone's like, oh, that's what college is about. But no, I was like blacking out every weekend. Um, And it's funny because my first night out was the night that I got broken up with by this guy. Mm -hmm. And I swore that going out, getting wasted, underage, might I add, and making out with random boys at the bar was going to heal me. And all it did was make it worse because I didn't want to make out with anyone, much less a man. Um, But I didn't know that at the time yet. So, yeah, I don't think I dealt with any stigmas because I kind of just blended into the college scene in a way. I just like masked my way through. (laughs) So that was a little bit delayed reaction to what you what you just said. Um, So right before we started recording, you mentioned something about whoopsies um, about shrooms shrooms and drugs and i'm like hold on hold on hold on hold on and you were talking about mental health i was like hold on this is a good topic mm-hmm. so now now we're finally um ready to talk about that you shrooms what about the shrooms what happened the shrooms okay so mental health journey my mental health journey started when i was 18 it wasn't until 2020 when i was just at total rock bottom i was going through a breakup again 10 years later, essentially, and kind of being thrown into the same lesson that I hadn't learned from the first time. And that rock bottom for me was the first time I ever got on medication for my mental health. And I think at the time, it really just helped bring me out of this dark hole that I was in because I legitimately did not see a reason to stick around. I was like, why... Like, why do I have to feel so much suffering and this emotional pain? Like, for me, emotional pain is like a burning sensation in my chest. Like, it just eats away at me. It's total panic. And I know that it's my nervous system. But at the same time, like, the thoughts, they're hard to get step out of. And so I was like, you know what? I've tried everything except medication. Mm -hmm. And I always thought, you don't need medication. You're just – you just need talk therapy. Um you'll be fine, right? Like, oh, medication is great for other people, but not for me, right? Because I obviously, in the work that I do, I've interacted with clients who take all kinds of medication. It ranges from like anti-anxiety, antidepressants, antipsychotics, like all of it. Mm -hmm. And so I finally got on meds and I was like, wow, I can think again. (laughs) Um, And they worked for a little bit during that period. Um, but when you're on antidepressants, you can't like, you can do shrooms, but you won't feel it. And so I had never been like, I had never thought like, Oh, I really want to do shrooms. That was never me. I was like a hard drug kind of girl. Like, yeah, let's do a line of Coke in the bathroom or let's do some Molly at the festival. Like that was my scene. Okay. I wasn't like trying to be hippy dippy in nature. Not yet at least. (laughs) Cause now I'm like such a hippie and I love it. Um, but yeah, so I was like, Oh, I finally think about doing mushrooms, but I'm on fucking antidepressants. Right. And another thing 
that I did was I stopped drinking alcohol altogether for the sake of my medication. Mm -hmm. I was like, if it's going to work, I'm not going to drink anymore. And so I've been sober for like 455 days from alcohol. Um, I have a countdown little or timer on my phone that tells me how many days just so I get reminded. Yeah. And so it's important for me to, to be able to see that um, because I have tried so many times to get sober from alcohol and I never really, I never really succeeded until I had to, I guess. So uh, we're not drinking alcohol, but we can't do shrooms. And then I basically have another mental health breakdown. The medication I'm on isn't working anymore. And I, figure out I have these symptoms that I didn't know I had before because basically my drinking and drug use was masking my mental health for pretty much the entirety of my teen and early 20s, which is like mind boggling to me to be 30 and be finally getting diagnosed with the correct mental health issue. um, That's pretty, that's been pretty validating and wild, but also very much like a roller coaster. Um, but there was basically this period in between medications where I was like, you know what? I'm finally going to do mushrooms. And so I figure out how to get some mushrooms and I do them. Right. And I'm like expecting a lot because people talk about how great mushrooms are, how they microdose for their mental health, like all this stuff, right? Like psilocybin therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I just kind of feel a little bit lightheaded and like, I don't know, I feel okay. And I'm like, I feel like I feel this way all the time. Are you sure that they're working? Mm -hmm. And so I take more and then a week later I try um, actual mushrooms like, you know, from the ground because the first time I tried were some capsules with like microdosing to see how I I would respond. Mm -hmm. And then when I figured out I was like not really being affected by it. I did a bunch of mushrooms the other night and still nothing like really just very calm. Um, I've never experienced that kind of like lack of anxiety when doing drugs because most of the other drugs I used to do recreationally cause more anxiety. Obviously there are like amphetamines and uppers, but yeah, I was just pretty underwhelmed and I thought, you know what? I think I'm done searching for answers in drugs. Like obviously my medication for my mental health is like so important to me because when I don't take it, Mm -hmm. I can see the difference. I can feel the difference. And it's just crazy to me that it's taken this long to figure out like, oh, this is what was going on. Mm -hmm. So yeah, mushrooms is pretty underwhelming for me, but I'm sure it works for other people. And I was joking with my cousin that, um, I'm so like my level of consciousness is so high that like not even mushrooms kind of like breaks my brain in a way, in a way that like a lot of people say they go through ego death and stuff. I thought that was going to happen for me and it didn't. I think I already went through it. (laughs) So that was interesting. So something that I thought of, um, I feel like a lot of, I know me being one of them, a lot of people, um, during this pandemic, a lot of people realize their gender identity, their sexuality, and mental illness. Um, 
a lot of conversations that I was hearing were people who are women, AFAB, um, female signed, at birth, signed female at birth versus their diagnosis. A lot of them were late in life. I mean, shit, even coming out, a lot of people late in life mm-hmm. like that. Um, does that, has that. Did that ever cross your mind that it's possible that you got diagnosed later because you're a woman? Hmm. I mean, I think those factors are probably at play on a subconscious level mm-hmm. for, like, I guess the professionals that I've interacted with because I was running through a timeline of my past history with therapy and, like, how many therapists I've seen. Um, I've seen seven in the span of 12 years, and none of them have ever really like pushed the idea of diagnosing me or thought that there was a reason for me to get diagnosed. And that brings me to this term, which is high functioning. Mm. We love to say high functioning depression, high functioning anxiety. What that means is that you have the ability to basically drive yourself to burnout in order to get like, in order to just do life at while at the same time other people don't have to overcome so many obstacles that are in the way it's basically like we're in a deficit because we have a mental health issue and in order to level the playing field we have to be high functioning we literally can't afford to be low functioning and we've also been conditioned to believe that we must always achieve so why would we ever be you know, like the the classic idea of what someone who's bipolar looks like, which is so relevant right now because of Kanye and everything that he's going through at the moment. Um, but the idea that people have of what someone who's bipolar looks like or the idea of what someone looks like with ADHD, it's like the kid in the classroom who can't sit in his chair, right? That's it. And ADHD just doesn't look any other way. And I'm like, how is it that these mental health issues have been reduced to like this one stereotype and that if you don't see that, then it's not, that's not true. I think that's really, really invalidating high functioning Um, because it implies that we have chosen something Mm -hmm. when most mental health issues are hereditary. They're inherited. So it's not like you sat there and chose the family that you were going to be born into. You didn't fucking push, pull, play Russian roulette and decide, oh, I want this brain. I want that brain. Yeah, we'll take that one. I'm pretty sure if you had a choice on your family and your brain and what you looked like, you probably wouldn't be with the family that you came from or the brain that you have, right? But that's the fucked up part of life is that we don't even choose to be here. We just are. Yeah. And then we don't even get a refund. <laughs> So you might as well make the best of it. That's what I've come to learn. I love your positivity. I feel like I've become more of a negative Nancy. So it's it's, not, it's nice to be around other people. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Something about like diagnosing and kind of um, mental health and being a um, person of color or not. Well, cause I don't consider myself a person of color. I never have. And when I became aware of the term, I never felt like it because I have white privilege. And to me, I'm like, I just, it just doesn't feel right to me. I was like, because I, I have all these, uh, 
all these things that I don't have to work. I mean, having mental health issues, I've had to work extra hard to be considered quote unquote high functioning. Yeah. And kind of with um, the white privilege, there are things that I haven't, that I haven't had to work extra hard for because of that white privilege. Um, But I am still, despite that, I am still from Mexico. I'm still Mexican. I may look how I am. I, my Spanish, no suena lo mejor. Dios mío, me me da vergüenza. Pero, de todos modos, soy de Mexico. And I think, yes, you were the one that brought this up. I mentioned how um, I had a coworker who at 16, she got diagnosed with ADHD. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, lucky her. Because I only got diagnosed like six months ago, I think, was it? Um, And I had to seek out that diagnosis. And so that was something that was interesting. Not interesting, but something that I was hoping to find other people. And if they related is you had to seek out that help. When I first got treatment for depression, I had to seek out that help. And I feel like that's going to be a common thing I'm going to come across. Anyone dealing with mental health, they had to go seek out that help themselves. And so... Um, you, I think you said, oh, is your coworker white? And I said, yeah, you didn't have to say anything else. And I'm like, oh, that was an advantage or that's a disadvantage that I had in my life growing up. I think also not because, um, mental health was a little, a little hush hush. No, it was, it was was hush hush with my family Mm -hmm. and, when I was trying to get all these, like, to see if I was, to see if I had ADHD, I, I really, really suspected it. And I was, so I was asking my parents all these questions about stereotypical things. I was like, okay, I did really well in school. I paid attention, but also I was like, I like, I like to learn. I don't like school, but I like to learn. Mm -hmm. And so I was asking all these questions. Did I ever do this? Did I ever do that? My parents were like, no, you, no, that was fine. You didn't know you weren't acting like that. I was like, no, no, no. Like a lot of things that they were saying were like, making me feel like, oh, maybe I don't have ADHD or, you know, they would have mentioned something. Um, I don't know where I was going with this. Oh, so my parents never saw the reason to take me to right. for ADHD. Um, I actually am on a little bit of a different boat. I actually went to therapy at five years old. Yeah. Um, the reason being is because my parents, they were having um, – they were having issues. I, yeah. st- I still don't fully know because I, I don't want to know. Yeah. I've gotten to a point in my life where I'm like, their issues were not are not my issues now, and I have unresolved trauma from them yeah. like that. But anyways, because of how the family dynamic was changing at that time, um, my dad, I think actually I don't even know whose idea it was. I just know yeah. that once a week my dad would take me somewhere. I would um. I remember the exit too. I remember what I would look and see on the like right side of the window whenever I knew we were almost there. It was this woman. I don't know what she looked like. I just remember it was a woman and we would play games. That's what I remembered. I love going to therapy because we, there were games. That's how I learned how to play the game on Kala. And I love that game. But um, I never understood why I was there. I just knew that I was there and I was talking to this random person. And I remember – crying one time I just I don't know why that stuck with me but I remember crying one time Mm -hmm. in there um I don't I forgot what was going with this but it's really fine 
Anyways, kind of going towards um, the end here. Are there any experiences that you've thought of that have come up that I haven't asked or something that you feel like is important to talk about or something you've noticed um, about what it means to be um, Latina and American, Colombian American? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think the last thought I have on what you were just sharing is that when they, when people don't see the hyperactivity in the ADHD, they just assume that it's not there. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think what we've been learning about ADHD is that there's also an internal process that happens, which is the inattentive part. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to differences between women and men, men tend to be more hyperactive. Women tend to be more inattentive. Um, so yeah, I think that's another big reason why women don't get diagnosed till later. But I think when you said that we both had to advocate for our diagnoses, that like really struck me <laughs> because I've never fought so hard for something in my life. Like why have I been to seven therapists? Because, you know, for reasons, right? Maybe someone was like going out of practice or they were done practicing at the place that I was seeing them. But in some way, shape or form, I have not had a consistent therapist in the way that I wanted. And I've also not had one challenge me in the way that I wanted mm -hmm. or ask me good questions. It's just kind of like, I think sometimes because I'm so capable of holding it together that people just assume that I'm good. And it's like, you're not plugged into my brain. Like, please, let's just, like, if my brain had a headphone jack and I could just have people come by like I'm a museum exhibit and they could hear the things that happen they would be horrified and when I do share the thoughts in my head to like my best friend Teresa she is like shocked every time she doesn't she's like I didn't know the severity of your thoughts until like 2020 when you called me and like just told me everything that was going through my head and I'm just like I remember that every day that like nobody has the best perspective on what you're going through unless you tell them like verbatim, you know, like my brain is telling me blah right now, or my brain is telling me that you don't actually care or whatever it is. Our brains will literally convince us about anything. Yeah. I just think that's what I need people to know. And also the other thing, fun fact, your brain doesn't know the difference between what's real and what's not. So whatever it is that you think is the th are the things that you're going to believe, which is why faking it till you make it is so popular as like a concept, I think, because that shit actually works. You're psychologically playing yourself. Exactly. Yeah. You can, but we can only do this because we have consciousness, right? Like mm -hmm. animals can't do this. Animals don't, you know, I think like dogs feel like shame and guilt, but I don't know anything more about like, animals emotional intelligence i do know octopuses are very or octopi are very smart so intelligent oh God, um but yeah i think that thing about like just retraining your brain it's possible but it takes a lot of dedication a lot of advocating for yourself because even mental health professionals will invalidate you i'm, I'm literally just here standing as a testament to that right as a mental health professional myself, I am not exempt from getting shitty treatment or, you know, being with someone who isn't doing what I would like in order to get the most out of therapy. So 
I think that's pretty much it. I love it. Okay. So before starting, I knew, like I said, I knew you were Colombian, but I could not remember the other part. So I was like, okay, let me write some fun facts from Colombia. Before I do, I was like, do you um, know any fun facts or anything like that information from um, Colombia or any, any like a well-known people who have discovered or done something that are from Colombia? Oh my God, this is a, probably a shame for me to say but uh aside from like the celebrities i don't really know any fun facts about colombia um i do know that people love to associate us with pablo escobar and cocaine and all of that and although i will say narcos is a beautiful tv show that was very well made um that's definitely a sticking point in my family like we don't really talk about that like the 80s and that the drug war and everything um, a, because they weren't really involved in it and like most of them had left Colombia to come to the U.S. by that time when like things were really bad in Medellin. Um, but also because it's just it's like the least interesting thing about Colombia. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But it's also the most publicly broadcast thing. Um, and a lot of Americans just don't understand how the government works over there and why these things happen. So Uh, I think the fetishization of that era from people who are not Colombian is a bit disturbing to me. Um, But yeah, I don't really know any fun facts. Oh, uh, I have a cousin who owns a coffee farm, actually, um, and we're really well known for coffee. And I'm obsessed with coffee. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, you are. Which is kind of what brought us together, you know? (laughs) So I thought of something. So before I go on to like the little, the fun facts that I got, um, something that came up to mind that I think is that I would like to talk about is dating as a person of color, because dating someone who is not a person of color versus dating someone who is white, it's very different. Do you have any stories or anything that you'd like to share about that? Uh, my first boyfriend was white, but. I think outside of that, I I don't find myself uh, subconsciously being attracted to anyone but people of color. Um, just because I like cultural appreciation is a big value of mine in relationships, even if we don't share the same culture or we're not both Latin X or, you know, that's not like a, it's not like, oh, I'm only going to date Colombians mm-hmm. or I'm only going to date Mexicans, you know, like. I'm open to all people, all cultures, but I find that I'm not really into like white people (laughs) for reasons, you know? Yeah. Like my best friend is white. I feel like that's enough for me. (laughs) All right. I like that. Okay. So no one come after me. These are the facts that I got from the Britannica online thingy, but some fun facts. It's more, Colombia is more than twice the size of France. Um, this one, unfortunately, Colombia is named after the infamous colonizer. Um, and the only American, um, um, American, Latin American, um, country, or any American, North and South American, that's named after said colonizer. Um, it is the largest speaking country in South America. Um, <laughs> it's, there's a huge, huge diversity in life forms, um, 
10% of the Amazon rainforest is in Colombia. I did not know that. And I didn't even know about, see, that was another reason that I really wanted to do this is like growing up, I have, okay, fun fact. I grew up in California, Bay Area, but I also spent a couple years in Idaho. I is, <laughs> growing up in Idaho has really affected my identity as a Mexican American. Um, damn it, where is it going with this? ADHD. I know it's going with fun facts. Okay, maybe we'll come back to it later. Oh, yes. So I don't really know much about other countries. So I was like, let me, I want to find out more because I feel like the the friends that I had in the Bay Area or the friends that I have in the Bay Area, they are well, way more well-versed in other countries. Um, I have a friend who's Salvadorian. Some of my friends are Salvadorian and I didn't know apparently like Salvadorians and, and, and Mexicans have beef or like there is like a, with older or something along the lines of that but i was like i had no idea that was a thing so that was uh this is a fun thing for me to be able to learn more about someone else's mm-hmm. culture even if it is from where are from like we're both latin american um yes huge diversity there is uh, speaking of coffee half of all for some reason i said legal on there so i'm just gonna go ahead and put that on there <laughs> Half of all legal exports are coffee. Um, And then I thought that was really fun. Um, More than 180 indigenous languages and dialects. That's what um, Colombia has. And there is the indigenous. It makes up 1% of the population. So I thought that was very interesting. But there you go. A little bit of information, history with a stranger in in a coffee place from Victoria. Victrola, I can't say that. Victrola. Um, I was going to say, I was like, yeah, if you don't like the coffee, don't mention the name. Got you. But this entire time, oh, yeah. we've been drinking my, uh, my drink of choice, an iced oat vanilla latte. I will, this is the drink I get at every coffee shop so that I can compare across the board. Yeah. It's my uh, control yeah, variable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this one was very good from Victrola at uh in seattle yeah all righty um well i guess this is the end of it thank you for your time i think it's been over an hour and a half amazing i feel like i've learned content i definitely like i knew that i was gonna be learning like new things about you and i definitely feel like i learned a lot so thank you hello it's me again this will be the last one this is the last little introduction snippet thingamabobber anyways i'm just gonna get started to the point because it's a little bit embarrassing how many times i've tried to record this but again um that i'm just a perfectionist so (laughs) um the reason i'm putting this in here is because i originally had a little snippet of asking norms if she wanted to give any shout outs or um say any of her social media stuff um and that was all done but then she changed her handle so this is why I'm here. If you are interested in reaching out or following her, um, her handle, Instagram handle, uh, it's it's Norma Renata, and I'll go ahead and put that information somewhere as well. Um, but yeah, um, just a little bit of a snippet. Um, not only is she is she a therapist, but also a life a life coach, with her primary focus um, being to help queer queer women navigate codependency in relationships and by. And by doing that, to regain their self-confidence. So if you are interested, um, 
even if you're not, I really do hope you check out her stuff because she is amazing. Um, but yeah, that is all. And thank you so much for listening to the very first episode of Cafe with Strangers. And I will see you, hear you, you'll hear me next time. <laughs>